Hello and welcome to A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, where I'll be digging through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and my tiny brain of about 500 remaining brain cells and taking a light-hearted, laid-back and positive fanboys look at my favourite songs and bits of songs that fall within a different set theme every episode. Choosing from any song part that gives me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. It won't be a countdown, but I will leave my favourite choice for last. This is just a bit of chilled, unnecessary fun that hopefully inspires someone to buy a record, listen to an old favourite album, support a musician, and check out all this amazing shit that has formed the soundtrack of my life. As a lot of people like to share their opinions these days, please let me know if you think that I have missed anything in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at I won't ever check this email address at gofuckyourself.cock and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But seriously, if you do have any suggestions, you can hit me at suggestions at arockandrollrabbithole.com. I'd love to hear from you and check out some new music, some old music, great YouTube interviews, anything rocking and entertaining, I love it all. And if you dig what I'm doing, feel free to tell a friend or two and subscribe to the podcast. You can also visit the website www.arockandrollrabbithole.com for Spotify playlists of each episode, past episodes and some other golden magic. Also, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and here we go. But she was the sky Oh baby I was bound for Mexico Before we get into it, I want to thank everyone again for listening all over the planet. It caves my head in that it's been downloaded in over 40 countries this month. Thank you so much. We've had heaps of listens in Mexico, so this episode goes out to all you guys. If you want to rate the podcast on the Apple iPhone app and then shoot me a message on Instagram, I'll post you a pick and sticker pack for free anywhere in the world until I run out of them or until I run out of money. Thanks to Dave Rodriguez, Jake Govez, Claire Walsh, Kenny Firth and James Marks for rating the podcast on the iPhone app and your sticker and pick packs are in the mail. Thanks again, guys. I genuinely appreciate that, guys. Thank you so much. And also a big thanks to Rally Loves the Drugs Williams, the Sunbury Mumbler, Garth Plug, Owen Not Bad at Bass Downey, and DJ Daylight, Sam Whaley, for some nice vibes this week. Thanks heaps, guys. Love yous all. And here we go with episode five, Colours of the Mexican Flag. Oh, baby, I was bound for Mexico. In London every year, we have a carnival that was started by the the Jamaican immigrants to the UK, possibly about 57, 58. But in that summer of 76, which was very hot, there'd been some very heavy police pressure on the black community. Me and Joe went down there with Bernie 
and we were just under Westway checking out all the sound systems and stuff. And a conga line of policemen came through the crowd. Next minute, paper cups were being lobbed over, and then cans. We were there at the very first throw of the first brick. And the next minute, there was like police everywhere, and they literally just charged. All hell broke loose, and I mean hell. The crowd parted, we were pushed onto a, a wire netting. Bernie's glasses went over there, and I was over here, and Joe was chucked upside down. And this was one time where people kind of went, we've had enough, and we're going to say so now. And that's what gave the rise to the, to the song White Riot, because we participated in the riot, but I was aware all the time that it was a black people's riot, i.e. they had more of an axe to grind, and they had the guts to to do something physical about it. It's a, a moment of, um, I don't know, just sort of felt relieved, you know, especially when you held that brick and, and you loved it. And I remember Joe and me, this car being tipped side, upside down, me and Joe were trying to light the car to set it ablaze. It's one thing to say, right, let's burn the cars and burn the ghetto, but you try burn, setting a car alight. <laughs> and this big fat woman was screaming, Oh, Lord, they're going to send the car alight. And, like, the wind was blowing up the Swan Vestas, and, like, I couldn't get anything going on this car. It was just a comedy, some of it. It was a hell of a day. White Riot by The Clash. Bassist Jack Bruce wrote the music and also sang lead on this next classic. The lyrics were written by a poet named Pete Brown, who was a friend of Jack's. Brown also wrote the words for Sunshine of Your Love. Ginger Baker claims to have added the distinctive 5-4 opening to what had been in 4-4 before he made the change. Just as a side rabbit hole, a couple of great tunes that also use 5-4 are Don't Let Me Down by The Beatles and When Your Mind's Made Up by Glenn Hansard. Nobody ever loved me like she does Oh, she does Yes, she does And if somebody loved me like she do me When your mind's made up When your mind's Here's Clapton talking about the song Cream and the 60s. Jack sang White Room on the record. And, and in a way, um, it took a whole other series of events to bring that song back to my attention because when I was with Cream, I was very young and uh, I wasn't particularly taking much notice of what was going on, to be honest with you. I was in my own little world and uh, just a guitar player with a rock band. The, the time that we existed and were working and touring, we didn't have all this mania that exists now for the 60s. 
Um, Cream was really just a little known band from England, sort of slightly less, well, in fact, a lot less known than The Who. And we weren't really um, aware of what we were. I mean, and I especially wasn't particularly aware of how good the songwriting was. I just was all just, all these songs were just vehicles for me to play riffs in and, and play solos. And when uh, the cream broke up and time went by, that all, you know, was another just to me gone, you know, gone stuff gone in the past. And it wasn't until I did the Letterman show as guest of Paul Schaefer's band that um, the peculiarity and the, and the niceties of that song were reintroduced to me when he said, well, let's do that for fun. And I heard it as, as if I was a, a complete observer, you know, very objectively listened to them play and then joined in and found that it, it was a great song. And I actually had to learn the words. I mean, you can believe that. I just played that song with Cream for a year and a half, two years, and didn't even know what the words were. That was the reason for that. And I hope as time goes by, other things will come up like that, you know, because it's, it's not always good to play songs which you have your own series of reasons to play. It's actually nice to get inside someone else's skin and see what they like about it, you know, see what they like about it. So you can just look at it afresh, really. White Room by Cream. This next song was written by this band's great guitar player in 1968, but not recorded and released until 73 and 74 for the band's amazing second record. For this song, he drew inspiration from a fellow student who he revered and thought represented the idea of the perfect woman. He says, I remember being totally in love with this girl from biology and I never ever talked to her. I dared to ask out this girl and she became a lifelong friend. This song was performed regularly by the band between 74 and 77 and was last performed in London in 1978. White Queen, as it began, by Queen. On such a breathless night as this Upon my brow the lightest kiss I walked alone And all around the air did say My lady soon will stir this way Queen walks and the night grows cold. 
have I stayed? I love the footsteps that she made and when she came. All right, um, white wedding. You know, I know a lot of people ask me, did you really write this about your sister? And I got to say that it's not really completely true. It's like, I think everybody, when you write a song, you're, you're always looking for a new situation, new circumstance, something that does come from your own life, but it's never complete. Um, I mean, my sister was pregnant, she was getting married, but there was no argument or anything. But I thought about all the different people and all the times past when that was such a taboo thing. To, uh, and I thought about that, the taboo nature and conventions and, and the wedding being such a, should be such a celebration, but it, then it turns into something like a shotgun wedding. And then it went on from there. And I thought about this incestuous kind of sick brother who's... <laughs> who's probably me and he's... <laughs> who's gallivanting across the globe on some wild... Who knows what he's looking for? Living a completely unconventional life, leaving behind all your friends and just going and going. And um, all those things just started to play in the song. And I think the part of the song that really gets the most important is um, when it comes to the, the, the piece in the middle, because um, I suppose leaving home and leaving England and suddenly faced up with a new life again, it did make me think, there's nothing fair in this world, there's nothing sure in this world, there's nothing pure. So you better look for something left in this world. Just to prove that these lists mean nothing at all, I'm going to add a song by a band or artist that have either green, white or red in their name. So while we're still on the topic of white, here's the next choice. The title of the next song originates from what the lead singer thought the Salvation Army was called when he was a child. Here, Jack White talks to The Edge and Jimmy Page about Seven Nation Army. Seven Nation Army, you obviously worked out, the, did you have the guitar part and then you, then you did the lyrics to it, right? Well, I played it, uh, I remember we were at a sound check in Australia and I played it, uh, I started playing that riff and uh, I thought, oh, this is really cool, you know, and my friend came up with my roommate, Ben Swink, and he, so what do you think of this? He's like, eh, it's all right, you know, <laughs> one of those things where, uh, it's almost great when people say that, because yeah, it almost yeah. makes you get defensive in, in your brain and think, it's got, no, there's something to this. You don't yeah, see yeah, it yeah. yet. I, I, it's yeah. going to get there. Yeah, yeah. you got to uh -huh. have some imagination. You tell, you tell yeah, yourself, yeah, yeah. You, know, you know. 
Yeah, but uh, so kept at it, you know, and and, uh, and then I kind of thought for a second I left it there. I kind of thought, oh, maybe one day if I ever get, you know, have to do like a James Bond theme song or something or some yeah, spy yeah, movie, yeah, yeah, like yeah. oh, maybe I'll use that. But it did, it just kind of came out when we went to Hackney and recorded. But it really shows how it goes. Yeah, I'll get. Well, first of all, it's a, it's just a open it's open A tuning. Because I always thought it was Jimmy a could bass that opened the, the song. It's a. Uh, just an octave down, the, okay. the whammy pedal an octave down, and then uh, luckily it happened so I could uh, switch it off to the song. The main riff is just a. Uh, I started that because I thought well, it would be cool if I went back to the low eastern to get a low sometimes. You know, when I needed that extra thing. But uh, it's just started the. It's a great sound. Yeah, fabulous. Throw the low yeah, at the yeah. end if you want to, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And the slides. And Slides. Uh, all, all, yeah, only on the slide do I do. The, during the verses. Of... Then you have to switch off. Then a G. super guilty that I haven't included this band in the first four episodes, so I am making a stretch here to add Johnny Greenwood in here to represent the Green Team and to get a Radiohead song in. I love their album, The Bends, and here's Johnny and Tom York talking about the album just before it's released. We, we just kind of finished touring the album and it kind of not done very well and we got, I'd, I'd got like a few nasty stroke personal reviews about like me as well, you know, not just about, oh, the band's shite or whatever. Um, you know, this man is ugly, this man is whatever, and it was really personal stuff, and it had really got to me, because um, I was trying, you know, and then we went stateside, and then suddenly, oh, wow, this great big world. I seem to uh, spend most of my life running um, from either being completely super confident to completely super paranoid, and uh, that definitely fed 
both elements of that, you know. I think that was about the time then we released Anyone Can Play Guitar, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, people quite like that because it seemed to be this sort of gesture and they took it to be really ironic, but it wasn't at all. Mm. It was actually, it was just sort of saying, it's a celebration of being in a band, you know. I mean, I set myself up, totally. I remember there was um, some Steve Wright thing. Did you ever hear that, the thing when they did a version of Creep? And it was, uh, there was, they changed one of the verses and said, oh, we're just a bunch of melodramatic schoolboys. Yeah, that's, that's what it looks like. So subsequently, how did that affect the recording of the new album? Uh, <clears throat> maybe we had a lot to write about. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, it also, our confidence was, was um, when we went in to write it, when we went in to rehearse and stuff, it was great. You know, it was the first time we got to play as a band and, and write stuff since, since we'd been signed. We were having a really good time playing it and then we went into the studio. It was like, oh shit, we're in studios again. And uh, we, again, we got freaked out. You know, it was a long period of... of of our confidence being um, smashed to smithereens and then, and then um, it coming back. And, uh, you know, by the, we, we spent, like, how long did we spend in the studios? Like three months or something? We did, like, and again, touring got in the way, as usual. We, yeah. did, we did a month there and nearly finished a lot of the album and then had a tour in Japan and Europe. Which and actually did us a lot of good. Yeah. Got us out of the studio because we were all starting to get a bit crazy. <sighs> this is all a bit deep, isn't it? So how does this album compare for you two then? I mean, have you thought about it in comparison to um, Pablo Honey? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I can listen to this one. How about you? Yeah, this album for us is like, um, like I said, when we first started as a band, we spent five years writing um, songs in our bedrooms and recording them on tiny four tracks. And we used to just play those recordings obsessively over and over again to, to ourselves. Our mates as and well. to our mates. And, you know, which sounds very egotistical, it probably was. But this is, this is the first recording we've done where I feel like that again, and I'm still listening to it and still kind of getting it. It really feels like we've just, we just did it in our bedroom, which yeah. we didn't. That would have been quicker. It's, it's kind of something, you know, we, we feel that it's, it's really come from us. It's the first recording that's really come from us. Um, and because of that, I don't really care what people, how people take it. And it's a really nice feeling. It's a really liberating feeling. Mm. There's a certain sort of... The uh, degree of, of, you know, if the enemy smashes again, then great. I don't care. I really, you know, we don't, we don't need them anymore. Radiohead, fake plastic trees. The green plastic watering can for a fake Chinese rubber plant and a fake plastic girl. This next song from the early 70s has a great deep groove and has recently made a resurgence due to being used as a theme song for Bill Burr's piss funny cartoon, F is for Family. Here's the singer explaining what the band name means. Redbone means half breed. Oh. You know, it means ah. 
Yeah. Anyone who has any any part of blood, Indian blood, like if you have an eighth Cherokee or something, that's a red bone. Ah. Rather than because in the olden days, now we learn. <laughs> if you call a Native American uh, 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 like a breed or a, or a half breed, it was fighting words. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. So yeah. the term was red bone. This was a peaceful way of saying it. Interesting. You know? I see. Good. It was respectful. You know. Yeah. Oh, very. And uh, so uh, that's how it came about. Oh, that's great. It's yeah. neutral instead of... It's neutral, yeah. Come and get your love, Redbone. on our tour is Red. I have always loved this next song, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Red Right Hand. Take a little walk to the edge of town and go across the track Where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as it ships and cracks where secrets lie in the border fires and the humming wires Yeah, man, you know you're never coming back Past the square, past the bridge, past the mills, past the stacks On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man In a dusty black coat with a red right hand Another Aussie song. This is a very green song with red in the title. A great environmental message song that the band played in the streets of New York outside of the Exxon building after one of their ships spilled over 10 million gallons of crude oil in Alaska. Let's, be, let's, let's put us and Exxon in perspective. Exxon is one of the most gigantic, enormous, uh, powerful corporations in the world. Uh, they haven't really uh, come running into this building screaming... Uh, anything of the sort, they will let it go. The record of Exxon uh, is that a whole lot of people uh, expressed their concern about what had happened at the Valdez, uh, cut up their credit cards, uh, but the CEO of Exxon pointed out that their profits sustained. Uh, we're a small screaming voice, uh, the little gnat, the little ant, the little blowy uh, at the bottom of the huge skyscraper, but we were there. Uh, that's what we've always believed in. We'll keep on speaking. Uh, if they don't listen now, someone will be listening tomorrow. So the next question was, why do it this way? Why do it on a sneak outdoor show in front of the building? And it was always a, a desire of ours to be able to play in a big city like New York on the streets. And we chose uh, the Exxon in front of the Exxon building and Exxon, not because we attribute uh, any special or particular blame uh, to that corporation, but because uh, the spill of oil in Prince William Sound some 15 minutes, months ago from the Exxon Valdez 
and the whole history of what happened since that period of time for us was a perfect image and a metaphor for what's going on right around the world in our own country in Europe in the third world and here and there are things that we think are, are so important that they have to be said and we wanted to say it and we said it today and the best way that we could say it was with song midnight oil river runs red so we came and conquered and found riches of commons and kings who strangled and wrestled the ground but they never put back anything now I'm trapped like a dog in a cage Wherever the truth is pursued It must be the curse of the age What's taken is never renewed Great new wave or post-punk, whatever you want to call it, Kiwi song from 1978. It also has one of the wackiest piano solos in it and a great strange ending to the song too. I see red, split ends. I also found a cool version of Neil Finn's son's band playing this with Eddie Vedder. Ed Ved sings Red. Adam, first track on side two is Red Hill Mining Town. So tell us about the making of that song. Well, it started out as a, a demo that we were doing in STS earlier in the year and as a piece of music and it was really difficult to to get a feeling for where it fitted in because it it was very kind of heavy on the beat and that sort of thing. And 
within the song, there was this feeling of a northern mining town that suggested a sort of approach to brass or whatever. And really and truly, what we ended up with at the end of the day was was making a connection with the breakup of of family life in a community where there is high unemployment um, and general poverty. Um, a working community which was once proud and had a spirit, um, which is something that we made a connection between, I suppose, what's been happening in Ireland over the last, I suppose, 10, 15 years, where there hasn't been a great growth of of jobs for people or whatever, and the declining mining industry in England. And I think it was a, a very poignant way to to set out and try and describe the emotions involved in, in the kind of breakup of, of family life strictly through a lack of dignity f from not having jobs and, and obviously poverty as well. I mean, like that song, for instance, it's a very emotional song. Now, you say it's, it, it's about a person, personal relationship as seen through, say, the minor strike in Britain. Is that what you mean? The song was inspired by the minor strike in the UK. Uh, but I wasn't so much interested in the, uh, the the political aspects of the minor strike as as in the effect that that minor strike had on relationships. Uh, that you know, you read about uh, you read on the news and in the papers about another factory closes down and um, another thousand people are unemployed. But you don't read about how that affects their family life. Mm. You don't read about how that affects the man as he goes home to his woman and to his children and he has no pay packet to slap on the table. You don't read about that. And so when I wrote Red Hill Mining Town, I wrote about that. You know, it says, uh, the seam is split, the coal face cracked. The lines are long, looks like there's no turning back. Through hands of steel and a heart of stone, our labor day has come and gone. And you leave us hanging on in Red Hill Town as the lights go down. And then it goes, the glass is cut, the bottle run dry, our love runs cold in the caverns of the night. We're wounded by fear, injured in doubt. I can lose myself, you I can't live without, because you keep me holding on in Red Hill Town as the lights go down. And so I tried to paint a picture of the breakdown of a relationship and... I see so many men and m women just lose their pride in themselves as a result of this new era that we're a part of. I see this as a, as a, as a, as a whole new era, this new technology that's taking over. Supposedly, it'll set us free, and yet I see it as, as, if we're not careful, enslaving us. Because who does it serve? Machines don't ask... Uh, for pay rises. Machines work 365 days a year. Um, they don't go on strike. And uh, But you see, if I, if I went on and on about that in a song, mm. as I am now, mm. many, maybe, maybe many people wouldn't listen to me. So I tried to write about the human uh, side. Red Hill Mining Town, you too. Oh
This next one is one of the best songs that falls under the super important category of songs with long names with red in the title from an English band about late night taxi trips after a night out. Arctic Monkeys, red light indicates doors are secured. If not, we'll have to have two. We are coming up at our end, aren't you? So I'll get one with you. I want to let us have six in, especially not with the food. He could have just told us no, though. He didn't have to be rude. You see her with the green dress. She talked to me at the bar. Where I can miss her any two pound fifty. We've only gone about a yard. I didn't you see she was gorgeous? She was beyond belief. But this lad at the side drinking the smell of ice came and paid for her tropical reef. And I'm sitting going backwards. And I didn't want to leave. I said it's The next two are blues classics with red titles. The first one was written by Willie Dixon, who wrote over 500 songs in his life. A life that ended in 1992 after suffering a heart attack, and also after having a leg amputated a few years earlier due to diabetes. First released by Howling Wolf in 1961, and also Sam Cooke in 1963, this version was released in 1964 and became a number one record in the UK and continues to be the only blues song to reach the top of the British charts. This was the Rolling Stones' second number one single in the UK after It's All Over Now, Little Red Rooster, Rolling Stones. I am the Little Red Rooster Too lazy to crow for days Everything in the farm Upset in every way The dogs begin to bark Hounds begin to howl Begin to bark, hounds begin to howl. Watch out, strange camp people. Little red roosters on the prowl. Here's some of Howling Wolf's version, too. The second red titled blues tune 
is Red House by Jimi Hendrix. McCartney about Sergeant Peppers, Eric Clapton, and Jimi Hendrix. I understand that Jimi Hendrix covered Sergeant Peppers mm. just a couple of days after it came out. Yeah. Um, that's ballsy, for one thing. It was very ballsy, yeah. Well, did you know he was going to... Were you there, for one thing? I was there, yeah. It was at the Savile Theatre in London. And um, I was there, Clapton was there, Townsend was there. We were like, all come to see this new guitar god. And yeah, we'd released Sergeant Pepper on the Friday. And two days later, on the Sunday, he'd learned it and he played it. And he, he played it, he played a great version of it. But he had this uh, vibrator arm, mm -hmm. you know, the Bigsby arm on the guitar. And it- The whammy bar? The whammy bar, mm -hmm. call it what you will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's going, go, and we're going, whoa, great, great. But we knew, now he's out of tune. Because you're stretching the strings. Every you time stretch you the strings in those days, that would send you out of tune. So it's his first number. So we're looking, what is he going to do? So he starts looking for Eric Clapton in the audience. He says, is Eric out there, man? And Eric Clapton is the guitar god at that point. Clapton is god. Yeah. But Eric is there, but Eric's hiding. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy spots him. Hey, man, will you come up here and tune this thing for me? <laughs> wow. Those are some brass swingers right there. <laughs> Did Clapton go up and tune it? No. <laughs> this absolute classic needs no introduction at all.
lastly, we get to Green. This is a great chilled Melbourne song that keeps the car vibe going from Prince's Little Red Corvette. This singer has the smoothest voice, and this song was a minor hit in Australia in the 90s and is an absolute cracker. Green Limousine, The Bad Loves. Listen to the sounds of the revolution Everybody's As a kid, I really only had access to rock music, but for some reason, I had a tape by an Irish folk band called The Furies, which I loved. That record was called When You Were Sweet 16. Here's the Scottish songwriter Eric Bogle talking about how The Furies changed the name of one of his songs and a few other stories related to the song. A couple of Irish friends of mine, the Fury Brothers, Eddie and Finbar, they got hold of it and they recorded it. And they changed the title from No Man's Land to The Greenfields of France. And it's probably better known by that title because Eddie and Finbar had a big hit with it in Ireland. It was in the hit parade for 28 weeks or something silly, you know. So now most people call the song Greenfields of France and not my original title, No Man's Land. And I really don't care. Well, the song's a thing, you see. And anyway, I registered both titles. <laughs> Do I look stupid? Anyway. I asked that question once before and I shouldn't have. <laughs> and uh, in 1997, John and I were doing a tour in the UK. We arrived just after, if you remember, that was the year that Tony Blair and his new listening, caring socialist government was likely to power Great Britain. And shortly after we got here, a wee lassie wrote to him uh, called Margaret Gibney. And she said, Dear Mr Blair, my name's Margaret Gibney. I live in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I'm 10 years old and I've never known what peace is. So while you're the Prime Minister of Great Britain, could you ensure you keep the peace process going and try to bring peace to my country because I love it very, very much. You're sincerely Margaret Gibney. It was a nice letter. The national press in Britain got a hold of it and they, they ran it for a few days as a human interest story. So Tony Blair invited Margaret Gibney down to number 10 Downing Street to meet him. And while Margaret was visiting, Tony presented her with a framed copy of what he called his favourite anti-war poem, and it was mine, The Greenfields of France, as Tony Blair called it. Anyway, the Times newspaper ran an article about this whole thing, and there was a, uh, a photograph of Margaret and Tony at number 10 Downing Street with a poem between them smiling for the cameras. And part of the accompanying text to the photograph read, um, the Prime Minister's favourite anti-war poem, The Greenfields of France, was written by a Scotsman, Eric Bogle, who died in the First World War. <laughs> He's looking better though, isn't he, now? <laughs> the colour in his cheeks. 
a business plan. <laughs> My wife was very relieved. She said, I thought you'd just lost interest. She said, You're dead, I can live with that, no problem. It's cruel. It's cruel but fair, your wife, isn't it? Cruel but fair. The cruel bit I like. Okay. I think what the people meant to say is that Eric Bogle Scotsman's career died in World War I. The Furies, Greenfields of France. Well, how do you do, young Willie McBride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside and rest for a while need the warm summer sun? I've been walking all day and I'm nearly done. I see by your gravestone you are only 19 When you joined the Great Fallen in 1916 I hope you died well and I hope you died clean Our young Willie McBride was it slow and obscene Did he beat the drums slowly, did they play the fife lowly, did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? And did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? Here's the singer explaining the location behind this next classic. This next song we're about to do is called Green River. At the time, it was certainly one of my very favorites that I'd ever recorded. And it really started out uh, from a time when I was quite young, one, two, three years old. My family would travel up to Winters, California. That's in Northern California. And we would camp at the Puta Creek. We had a cabin there. It's a place where I learned how to swim. It's where I learned how to fish. I would uh, catch pollywogs. Of course, I uh, eventually was able to put my head underwater, but for a long time I was too scared to do that. And uh, of course, dragonflies and other critters were always in the mix. And uh, a lot of that um, scenery and those memories made its way into this song. Another little part of the song, of course, is uh, right up the street from the house I lived in, in El Cerrito. There was a pharmacy, a drugstore, had a soda fountain. And one of the drinks they would make for you was a Green River. And I stared at the label on that uh, bottle of syrup called Green River when I was about eight years old. And I said, I'm going to save that. That's important. And for some reason, it stuck in my head. And eventually, all this stuff became a song. All right, let's do the song. Green River, Creedence Clearwater Revival.
That's the last of them before I get to my favourite. But I want to include a funny, crazy or interesting story in each episode about one of the songs or artists. And today's story is about Nick Cave. Here's Nick talking about a note he sent to MTV in the 90s. Golden Artist Chat. Hi, I'll just put this letter, which I actually wrote, um, into some context. Uh, in 1996, I released my ninth studio album uh, called Murder Ballads. And on this record, I did a duet with Kylie Minogue called Where the Wild Roses Grow. And this was uh, released as a single and became a hit. Um, MTV, who, who had uh, ignored me for 20 years, uh, put this video on heavy rotation. And I was catapulted into the world of superstardom. The upshot of this was that MTV nominated me for the best male artist along with George Michael. Um, and uh, I was, uh, felt uncomfortable on some level about this. And on one very stoned evening, I wrote uh, the following letter uh, and overnight, the door to MTV was closed f firmly in my face and I was flung back into obscurity. <laughs> to all those at MTV, I would like to start by thanking you for all the support you have given me recently and I am both grateful and flattered by the nominations I have received for Best Male Artist. The airplay given to both the Kylie Minogue and PJ Harvey duets for my, from my latest album, Murder Ballads, has not gone unnoticed and has been greatly appreciated. So again, my sincere thanks. Having said that, I feel it is necessary for me to request that my nomination for Best Male Artist be withdrawn. And furthermore, any awards or nominations for such awards that may arise in later years be presented to those who feel more comfortable with the competitive nature of these award ceremonies. I myself do not. I have always been of the opinion that my music is unique and exists beyond the realms inhabited by those who would reduce things to mere measuring. I am in competition with no one. My relationship with my muse is a delicate one at the best of times, and I feel that my, it is my duty to protect her from influences that may offend her fragile nature. <laughs> she comes to me with a gift of song, and in return I treat her with the respect I feel she deserves. And in this case, this means not subjecting her to the indignities of judgment and competition. My muse is not a horse, and I am in no horse race, and if indeed I was, still I would not harness her to this tumbrel, this bloody cart of severed heads and glittering prizes. Thank you. My muse may spook, may bolt, may abandon me completely. So once again to the people at MTV, I appreciate the energy that was put behind my last record. I truly do and say thank you, and again, I say thank you, but no, no thank you. <laughs> Yours sincerely, Nick Cave. Let's take a short break and quickly recap the magic before I get onto my favorite red, white, or green song. Recapping the magic. 
So here's my choice for my favourite Mexican flag colour song, red, white or green. This song won the 2009 Song of the Year at the Australian APRA Awards. It was released on the 5th of July 2008 as the lead single from the band's album of the same name. Brendan O'Brien began work on mixing this record literally the day after completing production on ACDC's 2008 album Black Ice. I've always loved the vibe and upbeat energy of this tune. White noise, the living end. Is there to decide? 
Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Rob Dean at Okinawa Here Studios for the podcast music and Paddy Cummings for web and tech help. And as mentioned at the start, if you do want to tell me that I did something wrong or something I could do better or something I got wrong in this free podcast that took me a few full days to put together, you can send me an email at I will never ever check your whinging email at pleasegofuckyourself.cockgoblin.pooppooppoop.geocities forward slash poop. But seriously, if you do have any suggestions, you can hit me at suggestions at arockandrollrabbithole.com or Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast. I'd love to hear from you and check out some new music, some old music, anything you got that's rock and roll related, love it all. And if you dig what I'm doing, please tell a friend or two. And I would be super thankful if you could pop onto the Apple Podcast app and rate and leave a comment about the podcast. That would be fantastic. Thank you. And as mentioned earlier, I'll post you out a sticker and pick pack. You can also visit the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com, for Spotify playlists of all the songs used in each episode, past episodes, and some other golden magic. And subscribe to the podcast so you get updates when I release a new episode every week. To end the podcast, I like to add, when I can, an example of the topic that I enjoy from a lesser-known artist who have had less than 10,000 hits on Spotify or YouTube, and today features a great song called Green Lights by Paddy Cummings. Thanks again. See ya. When the morning came, I felt alive I felt the life and karma were both on my side Chance and possibility were both on the rise Forces once were hindering, but now riding by Flanking me with good intentions
Slide to a bed. 